We spend far too much time worried about what makes us different than the next person or better than the next person and not enough time thinking about why we should respect the next person. We all have a story, an overarching theme that runs through our lives and makes us who we are. The problem is, we think that since each of our stories is different, there's not a lot of perceived value or shared struggle. But we have far more in common than we can imagine, and what motivates one person can certainly help us as well. The Third Lab Podcast is about understanding, respecting, and appreciating the struggle that it takes to overcome immeasurable odds in order to reach your destiny. Join me as I interview and bond with some of the most inspiring and incredible people, diving into their why to get a full understanding of their being. Without each other, we have nothing. So let's go on this adventure together and take on the future with open minds and open hearts. Welcome to the Third Lap Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Third Lap Podcast. As always, I think I'll lead off every episode by saying pretty much the same thing. I'm, I'm so excited to get an opportunity to talk with the person that I have on the show today, Marquise Richards, who is a young revolutionary, um, a brother that I've had the opportunity, really haven't known him that long, but you know, our initial conversation led to several others that ultimately led to him joining me today on the podcast. Um, he is the your founder, right? And also co-host of the Rational Anger podcast and Dear Reading, um, two really dope podcasts that you can find on Apple. We'll talk more in depth about the shows themselves and sort of how they came to fruition and what the purpose of them are. Um, but just a really amazing young brother, uh, educator, uh, entrepreneur, podcaster, revolutionary. I think we could go on forever with, with the accolades that he's added to his resume. But Marquise, man, welcome to the show. Nah, thank you for having me. I appreciate you so much. I'm super excited to be here. I'm not even going to hold. I was like, dang, we got to talk again. <laughs> I'm Absolutely. excited. Yeah. That first conversation we had was dope, man. You know, it was around just like you, you trying to get more information about some teaching opportunities where I work. Um, and then that led to just a different kind of conversation around just life and, and what it looks like to be a black educator and just a black man in this country. And so it was a great launching pad to today. Um, but I want to give you like a minute or so here. Just tell the people who you are and, and what you do. Yeah. Um, so like you said, my name is Marquise Richards, Marquise Davon on all social media. Um, I'm a black male educator, podcaster, um, social media strategist, event curator, content creator. As I get into more of that, um, specifically around like production and media and stuff, which has been super cool. Yeah. And then just activist. <laughs> revolutionary yeah. as you put it i'm gonna I'm use that <laughs> um an avid reader as well i'm a big big on reading books so yeah that's just a little bit of insight to who i am but i'm the co-host and founder of the dear reading and rational anger podcast um and we'll get into those a little bit later but yeah so we out here <laughs> yeah we definitely out here man you know and so like i said we had an opportunity initially to interact around like job openings education teaching as you were trying to figure out what was the transition that you were looking to make from where you currently are to potentially what's available to you in the future. So I think our conversation was supposed to last like 15, 20 minutes. We talked for like an hour. Um, <laughs> so we talked about a bunch of different things. 
And it, it really spanned a lot of, of stuff. And it ended with us kind of showing each other our book libraries and the things that we're currently reading. Um, I shared a couple books with you through PDF, through Gmail. And then you shared back with me your podcast, which I got a chance to listen to. Still working my way through it. I have quite a few episodes between the two different shows. And so, you know, you all been putting in work. I love the, the group that you work with. Um, I haven't heard as many of the um, the second podcast, but Dear Reading, I've listened to a couple, and I, I love the group that you have. There's yeah. this one young woman who, I'm trying to remember her name, but the one episode that definitely stands out to me, she continued to talk about how she wasn't college educated and like couldn't articulate herself correctly. Ah, uh, Bree. I love Bree. That's the homie. A1. She was That's the first the one to join me on the podcast journey. And so I hope, Brie, if you hear this episode, Brie, mad love to you. I hope that you continue to articulate yourself and express yourself. And I also want you to understand that some of the most impactful revolutionaries in the history of our people and our culture never attended a college. Some of them didn't finish high school. Some of them didn't finish middle school. That doesn't mean anything. It's the intelligence that you innately have that shines through on that podcast and through all of the shows that I've listened to. So shout outs to Bree, shout outs to you and all the other co-hosts, both between two your, your two podcasts. Um, but wanted to take a moment just to shout out Bree, man, because I heard that and it kind of hurt my heart because I'm like, man, she's downplaying the amazing things that she's contributing because she doesn't have a piece of paper. Forget that paper. Right. No, and I thank you for sharing that because I'll definitely make sure to specifically share that with her too, just because it's like, I think people forget, like the show is curated with four different types of like, degrees in terms of like levels of education career all of this fun stuff so i just want to make sure like every kind of person is represented especially from the hometown like yeah just because i have a four-year degree that don't make a difference on how either one of us show up in terms of liberation but then also just in terms of humanity don't let that paper fool you <laughs> no nah, never man you know we went into crazy debt behind that paper so in ways she's liberated in ways that we aren't right and so right. you know having that cross-section of experience and education is important because then that also means you get a chance to touch on so many different people's experiences that are going to ultimately listen to your podcast and just right. interact with you all throughout the the work that you do um, as, a, as a revolutionary and as a podcaster. I want to take a step back here for a second, Marquise. We talked about Dear Reading being the specific one that I've listened to the most so far. You know, give the people a, a, an idea of like, where are you from? What hood you repping? It's the Rep Your Hood section. So give you a chance to rep your hood and put your hood on the map, man. Hey, nothing but a word. So I am born and raised in a city of Reading. Um, shoot, I'm the middle of five single parent household. Um, but Reading is not too, it's about 45 minutes to an hour away from Philly. Um, and we're like inside, we're in the hood. We're not like outside. I know a lot of people think Reading and they're just like, oh yeah, horse and buggy. And I'm just like, no, we <laughs> we're in the middle of the city. Uh, majority black and brown town. And it's just been dope. Um, just in terms of how I grew up, the kind of people I got to interact with, but so many different cultures are in the city of Reading too. Like it's majority Latino. Like my dad's Puerto Rican, my mom's black. So it's always been like super cool just to kind of be like, oh, well, there's these two worlds. And I grew up with these, specifically with the black culture, but I had, was immersed with black people, Dominican people, all types, Puerto Rican, Mexican, everything. So it's been, besides food, it's just like culturally, I've just been like, immersed in so much so i've just had such an appreciation i went to college at susquehanna university and i studied broadcasting and theater studies out there as well so that was like a super cool journey because that's the first time i was away from home and i was the first one in my family to go to a four-year school 
which was super cool to just kind of see that experience. Cause I was just, I came home and I said, I've been around white, white people for the first time. This is, this is different. I just, whole nother world. I studied abroad in the Czech Republic. So I got to study theater and history out there. And then um, after I graduated, I went back to Reading. I worked a couple jobs, but I didn't find myself happy there. And that's the first time, like, usually I allow my work to kind of speak for itself. And that's kind of like how I keep motivated. But what I found, like, even doing this job wasn't rewarding to me. I was like, something's not it. I didn't even want to get out of bed. So I ended up quitting. And they know, like, normally I'll make a calculated decision. I had no plan after quitting. I said, I just, I'm not happy. I don't like this. Let me figure it out. So after that, my friend, um, Amanda, who's my roommate now, she was finishing up her last year at Temple, but she found this position um, at UPenn to be a residential advisor. And that's really where that spark of mentoring came from, was really just like, all right, I know I can work with kids. My first year out of college, they told anybody to tell you, Marquise is not working with kids at all. <laughs> but it ended up, I was thoroughly enjoying it. And I got to teach some classes and I never looked at myself as an educator, but like throughout even my entire college career, I'm always like helping people or even like through theater, I was educating people and having these discussions and doing these workshops and stuff. Didn't realize like that could all transfer into the education space. So once I finished, I started working with SMASH, uh, which is a program to get black and brown kids involved in STEM and college readiness. I was like, oh, I like this. I like being around. I like working with kids. I like this feeling. Um, let me lean into it a little bit more. So after that, I started focusing specifically um, in the after-school space, and I moved to Philly for work, and I didn't look back, <laughs> and I haven't looked back after that. So it's just been a real cool journey just in terms of me officially having my first full year in Philly, August 26th. I'm planning on leaving anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so that's kind of like where I started from the city of Reading and then ended up how I ended up in Philadelphia. That's dope, man. Um, and my pathway in the education was sort of similar. I had no interest in teaching or really being involved in education. I was rapping and performing and, you know, had my own path that I thought I was going to take. And it's funny because God just lines you up with what you're supposed to be doing. And right. so my first job out of college, I graduated, had to start making money immediately, couldn't intern for free and all of that stuff. And so ended up in a residential treatment facility working with kids. That was really the first time I had like work with kids, um, like extended beyond just maybe like a summer camp or mentoring. And then at that point, I, I haven't really looked back. Um, you know, I've been in education now about six years, been in talent for like the past four. And so I can relate. Born and raised, uh, born in Philadelphia, left here when I was 12, moved to Jersey, lived in Jersey, lived in Texas, lived in Florida, came back to Philadelphia about three years ago with my wife. And so we've been out here now officially three years. And coming back to Philly has been crazy because, you know, some of the same socioeconomic ills that plagued this city 20 years ago when I left are the same ones that are still here now. And so when I listen to you on your Dear Reading podcast specifically talking about your city, like I feel very similarly about Philadelphia and the fact that like we still have folks in North and Southwest and South Philly and West Philly that are really getting the raw end of the deal um, and not getting a chance to have their voices heard, but consequently the culture of Philadelphia, which is heavily black people, is being like mined for profit. But then we're not really seeing any of that stuff. And I feel like that really jumped out to me listening to Dear Reading again, specifically as you talked about like, hey, we're like we're the culture here, but we don't get the respect that we deserve. Nah, and that's complete facts. Like that's the stuff that I was like always worried about. Um, 
And that's really where the idea of Dear Reading really came from. It was because the local media actually wasn't getting the news right in the city. They weren't highlighting what needed to be highlighted. So for me, I was like, all right, well, what the media is not doing right now is giving perspective. Like, I get it. There's very specific guidelines. Like, I study communications. You get the who, what, when, where, and how, right? But we were like, you're not adding in the nuance that's necessary to figure out, like, what led to this shooting? What led to this robbery? What led to this um, outburst? And so I think for me, it was really like Dear Reading was an opportunity to do that. Because the original, my first episode in Dear Reading happened in 2017 when I was still in college. But that was my senior year. And it was with more of a diverse cast that made up the city a little bit more. But then um, I couldn't keep up between job searching, <laughs> figuring out this loan stuff and all this. Um, so after I graduated, Dear Reading just rebranded on July 7th. And we were just like, all right, but it's going to be, it's going to focus on Black people specifically. And we're going to take this new angle because we're, we make up 8% of the city of Reading. And so we are definitely like a forgotten, in a majority Black and brown town, it's still very much so like we're still a minority in that town because even white people have more representation than us in the city. So it was really dope. It started out as just like, all right, I want to talk about some stuff because I wanted to create a space that I enjoyed when I was in college. And that was like being in the Black Student Union. And we were engaging in these conversations so often. I was like, well, let me take that home because that's the part of college that I really missed was that fellowship with other Black people. And so I just brought that back and found my tribe. And it was just crazy to see like the amount of people that started supporting. Like we used to work out of this hot room, <laughs> recording our show, uh, surrounding a table with my iPhone recording. And we got there every weekend and people would show up just to listen into what we had to say. And that was the part that was wild. Like we had a live audience pretty regularly during our shows, uh, during our tapings. And so we realized we were starting to build a certain kind of community here. People were looking forward to what we had to say. People were excited to listen in. People were sharing it. We, I remember we recorded our first video and it was playing in like local bodegas and um, local stores. And they were just like, oh yeah, well look, there's Dear Reading right there. And so it was kind of cool because we were starting to kind of, now that we're two years in, we're like a household name in the city of Reading. We're like a very respected name in the city of Reading. So it's really interesting to like be in that space where People are looking to us to have social commentary where sometimes the mayor may fail or people are just like, this thing is happening in blackness and what do we do? So they use our podcast as a resource. We've been doing this for the last couple of years, but now because of the pandemic and stuff, they're looking at us in a completely new fashion that we're not even fully like caught up with yet either. So it's like been really interesting to kind of see the transformation of something that started out of just creating space out of necessity. And now it's just like people are looking to us to make commentary or figure out how to like navigate the space differently now. I love it, man. I love it. I love that it, it was grassroots. It started from the mud. You grew it out the mud. That's how it's supposed to be, right? Oh, like when you, you started at the top, it's gonna fall, man. You know, that's how gravity works. When you grow it out the mud, you become that rose through the concrete, right? Like the phoenix out the ashes. People respect it because they know that you put the work in. You're listening to the Third Lap Podcast with Mal Davis. Yeah. 
And so this is Mal Davis here with Marquise Richards, the founder and CEO of the Deer Reading Network, LLC. Um, just revolutionary young man that I, I'm just so happy to be able to connect with today. And so Marquise, you already started to dive in a little bit into sort of like the beginning of your career. And so talk to me, like, I, I feel like you're sort of on two, not separate trajectories, but two or three trajectories sort of at once, right? Like as an educator, as the revolutionary, and then like as the, the content creator as you're starting this career of these like three pathways that overlap in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways are also sort of separate. How did you even figure out that policy, right? Like it's something that was important and, and something that you needed to address. Like how'd you even get your start in the first place? True. Where do, where do I want to start from? There were a couple pivotal moments for me. So I'll start when I studied abroad. Um, I studied abroad in the Czech Republic and we were in Prague, Brno, and Chesky Krumlov. And Brno, during our time there, we ended up going to this nonprofit. And that's essentially the ghettos of the um, Czech Republic. And so there we met the Romani children. And they're like, they're the brown kids in the area. Um, and they were all sectioned off into like this very low income area. And I remember being there, I was like, yo, this feeling's wild familiar. Because when I'm in, like, growing up, I was in the weeds. I, I was in the middle of poverty i was in the middle of being poor and being black and brown and all these systems working but it was very normal so it wasn't until i got to college realizing like oh maybe we shouldn't have been living like that <laughs> like that's wild but it didn't click for me fully until i went abroad it was just like yo the fact that 98 percent of the czech republic took a poll and said i will not willingly live next to a romani person I was like, this is weirdly familiar. Like, this feeling is, like, weird but visceral. So I just remember being bothered by it. So that was studying abroad and getting out of America made me realize, like, oh, this world is completely, like, backwards. Like, what are we doing over here? So it was very familiar, but I still didn't fully pinpoint why I was, like, having this uncomfortability. Then the following summer, I had an internship in New York, and that was the summer where Philando Castillo and Alton Sterling ended up um, being murdered on camera. And it was the Alton Sterling one. I watched it and I remember going into my program the next day, which was an ed tech startup. And everybody's just kind of like still the day's still going. And like in the tech space, it's largely white. So I'm one of three black people like in this in this co-working space. And so being in New York, I was I was alone. I was like living with my cousin who was randomly there and randomly not in the PJs. So that was, uh, that's a whole nother story. I'll tell you that offline. <laughs> um, but it was like super fascinating because that was the one time where I was just like, I want answers. Like, how are y'all not reacting to this the same way I'm reacting? We must obviously live in two different worlds that you're not even thinking about this. And mind you, the ed tech startup, that John, work specifically of giving representation for, to black and brown kids virtually. There was a disconnect for me. I was like, are we going to make a statement? Is What is going on? Um, and I just remember that being so bothersome because I was like, if you're in this work to help kids right now, specifically kids who look like me, I was like, you're not making the comment that I need you to make. Um, so I remember that was like a very pivotal moment. And I just searched for answers. I went to a protest in Harlem um, and saw how that went down. And then I was like trying to figure out like people that I could look to. So I ended up seeing Mark Lamont Hill on his book tour for Nobody. And that's when things started clicking. I was like, oh, this person looks like me. He 
articulates himself in a way that I understand this language that he's using, but it's also like balanced in like who he's talking about and who he's talking to. So that was like super pivotal, pivotal for me because that's the first time where I was just like, oh, I can be somebody like him and I can be out here and I can be doing more work and also be uh, allowing my critical thought to come through. So fast forward, um, shoot, what is then that's post-college after this. No, 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 no. It was the election of Trump. <laughs> it was the election of Trump. That's what it was. I remember it rained that day. It was the first day I did not smile. And I was just like, I, I tried to smile at least once a day. But it was the one day I didn't smile. And I just remember people not even realizing. Like, I saw so many people on campus celebrate. And it was a PWI. So I was just like, white, white. But I was like, nah, this is wild because now we have to figure out how do we create a world affinity groups, affinity spaces in school. And like, why we have to be here. Like I couldn't go anywhere else. I didn't have scholarships to anywhere else. And I didn't have the money privilege to just jump around from school to school and stuff. So I was just like, all right, well I'm here. How can I disrupt this space and make it as equitable as possible? And so that's really where it started was like creating spaces and using theater as a way to engage in these conversations is really where that started. Cause I did theater for social justice specifically and really focused on the history of black violence and black feminist theater and how that came up. So just seeing like lynching dramas and really reading those and seeing how the same mindset from before is the same thing till today. Now taking that idea of my study, particular study of theater ended up just informing how I navigate the rest of the world to be completely honest. So seeing that a lot of their thoughts came from Baldwin or Lorraine Hansberry or Malcolm X or Angela Davis, Audre Lorde, like all these people kept coming up and you were people that I kept referring back to. So at that point, I was just like, I want to do something like that. I want to change that. I want to be a voice, at least for those that are coming into this college space to just feel as safe as possible and feel good to disrupt if they want to and just give Black folk the audacity to do whatever. Um, so by way of theater, it really started to inform how I wanted to start disrupting this space. So I used my video production degree to start the Say My Name series, which was just to kind of highlight the Black students at SU. And then um, after that, I was just like, how do I keep this activism going after I leave? Because it doesn't stop <laughs> beyond the university area. So after I got home, the podcast ended up becoming that avenue for me to do so, um, which then transitioned into the Rational Anger podcast, which was originally This American Negro, uh, which was Bridge, to, Bridge Academia in the Hood. So I was like, there still needs to be access because there's still a part where I'm using language that my people don't understand. My older brother was like, Marquise, you're speaking a whole nother language. And I was just like, right, let me dial this back. Let me try again. Um, so yeah, that's really where like this revolutionary spirit really came from this content creation and this um, education kind of spirit. They all like intersect in different ways, but it's very much so like, like you said, three individual paths at the same time. So that was a long-winded way to get to where I am today. No, no, that wasn't long-winded at all. That was wonderful, man. And I appreciate you taking that time to break it all down. I haven't left the continental United States. I haven't even seen half the states in the United States. And so my wife and I have a lot of work to do around like traveling and stuff post the pandemic. But everything that I've heard from people that have traveled internationally is what you said. Like if they go to a hood in another country, 
in Europe, in Africa, because even in Africa, right, where mm-hmm. you have your elite African people and then you have the impoverished and it's, a, it's that same visceral reaction. It's that same, this is unfair. Like, yo, this is mad relatable. If you lived in the hood, grew up in the hood, if you visited the hood, if you've worked in the hood, you know what it looks like. And so you can take that vision and, you know, I've been up and down the entire Eastern shoreboard. I've been to many hoods throughout the entire East Coast and they look the same. They feel the same. The pain and frustration and anger is the same. And what you were saying before about like the media not covering it the right way is because they do not add the additional context of the fact that like this is systematic, right? Like we want to point at people and say, you made these choices. But if you're third or fourth generation in poverty, you've lived in the same projects your parents did and their parents did. At some point, it stops becoming a choice and it becomes a system of oppression. And so, you know, I I love what you said about going to college and making a pathway for young black people to be disruptive, because especially when you're coming from an inner city or urban school, a lot of times you see those kids go to predominantly white institutions and burn out. They come back home their first year because those microaggressions you're just not used to. If you've been in school with black and brown people your entire life and then all of a sudden you're going to a school with nothing but Caucasian people that don't have, they see you as an, an other, right? And they treat you like another. And, and yeah, it's it's tough. Go ahead. You, you want to yeah, say no, you're No, you're speaking to like a whole fact there because I remember our, my first year coming home from school and all of our, like, me and my friends growing up, like, we had a very diverse friend group, but I just remember specifically the black and brown people were just like, is anybody else tired of white people? Anybody else? And we were, it was just one of them things where somebody, like, broke the ice, and we were just like, yo, this was exhausting. And we didn't realize, like, what this fatigue came from or why it was existing the way that it did. And, yo, I remember the Friendsgiving was definitely like that moment where we all had to have like a very intentional conversation of just like, we all grew in completely different ways. Our views are completely different. And that's the first time our friend group had to acknowledge like, we all experienced some kind of shift in like how we show up for each other. And we all have to recognize race and ethnicity and nationality in so many different ways now on how we relate to one another. And so we just realized like at that point, a lot of us, that's when me and a lot of my friend group definitely became a lot more mobilized and had our Negro awakening or whatever we want to call it. Like that was a very fascinating moment to kind of see that pivotal shift happen for a lot of us. There's no way to avoid it. And you know, shout outs to my woke white people, right? And like shout outs to the white people that are on that pathway to not othering people of color and are really checking themselves and checking their family because Really, that's the only way it works, right? Like, we are the minority. And so we can come to these realizations, but we still have to show up at work. We still have to show up at school. We still have to show up in society. And if society is not willing to, and and we're at a pivotal sort of like watershed moment now in society where we've had to riot and burn things to the ground to even get recognition. And so, you know, I've had friends that have been like, man, black people, man, the riots, like, you know, you burn this stuff to the ground, you're not making a message and or the message is being lost. And I'm, I don't believe in necessarily the destruction of property, uh, private property specifically. But I'm also not going to tell a person that spent their whole life downtrodden and abused how to take that out. Like, can we funnel that into something more policy driven so that 
10, 15, 20 years from now, my kids, your kids aren't going through the exact same thing. But my mother, who was a revolutionary and her friends were revolutionaries in the end of the 1960s, what they fought for is exactly what my wife and I were protesting for, right? And so when we were in protest in Philadelphia, we're literally marching for the exact same thing, which is recognition of our rights in a country that we helped build as slaves. And as the descendants, the direct descendants of slaves, we still don't get that recognition. And that's across the board, right? Like we're fighting for basic human rights. And when you were talking about Philando Castile, that was such a tough moment for me because I had transitioned into a new job and I'm on that job for like a week and Philando Castile gets killed. And so we have this like huge meeting and we're sitting in this room and it was me and maybe like one or two other people of color in that room. And I just didn't feel comfortable sharing. I'm new to the job. It's not a lot of representation, even though the Caucasian people at the table were super open and willing to have it. But like, I know what it's like to have a cop's gun in my face. I've been pulled over and, and harassed by police since I was nine years old. And so, you know, once I, I'm six foot four. And so once I got to my full height and weight, me versus the police, it was adversarial, right? Even if I was in the right, I was still in the wrong. Uh, just a quick, I was standing in this Chinese food store out in New Jersey and I'm waiting for my food and there's a cop that walks in. So I'm already on point. So across his speaker, I hear this, uh, it's an APB, they're looking for somebody. They say the, the, he's a black male between the ages of 20 and 34, between five foot eight and six foot two, long, shorts of long hair, you know, light brown to dark complexion. And he's staring at me and I'm staring at him. And I'm like, first of all, I clearly fit that description because you name 80% of black people in this entire country. So, you know, why do we have to then always be in those positions? And so, you know, I do want to shout out to well, white people that are putting in the work because without them, it's impossible. But I really want to shout out people like yourself and your friends that came to that realization of we have to do more for ourselves and we have to make sure that we're helping other people to be disruptive, even though we don't necessarily know what that means. We're still trying to figure out how to disrupt, but we know that we have to do something and it can't just stay at college. It can't just stay in this place. We have to bring it home and then we have to continue to make sure that it cooks up. And that's exactly what that was. So for me, um, I remember there were three instances. I was stopped when I was 16. I just turned 16 and I was on my way to work and I thought I was some other kid. And I've been 6'2 since like the 11th grade. So I'm just like, you know what? <laughs> um, so I remember that. And then I was just like, you know what? They just confused me with some other black dude. I'm annoyed. My face tells a thousand stories no matter what the situation is. That's my one flaw when it came to my theater degree. It's just, <laughs> I'm just always, are y'all serious right now? And so I remember that happening. I was just like, I didn't fully process it. I was just annoyed and I just took myself to work because I was about to miss the bus. Um, and then I remember being in college. I was in a full suit, shirt, tie, everything, going down to the bank down the street from my school. And I remember it was the cop, the precinct, and the bank was right across the street from each other. I walk into the bank and I walk out and the cop goes, woo, 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 to cross the street. Stop. What business you got at a bank? I said, what? <laughs> are you serious i said i'm in a, it was one of those moments i was like i'm in, i'm like in a suit so that was that moment where i realized respectability don't even save nobody a degree doesn't save anybody they don't matter you're still nigga at the end of the day and so for me i was just really in that moment where i, I was just angry i was like nah not even 
you asked what business do I have at a bank? You thought I just shouldn't have been there point blank, period. So that really annoyed me. And then it happened again, probably two months ago now. Um, I was walking from the bodega and I just happened to be a black guy, 6'2", red shirt, fit the description, but I'm carrying like a bag in my hand. Like I literally just got done paying for my breakfast platter. Cops stopped me. It took the it took the stoop people on the block just to be like, yo, nah, he's good people. It's not him. It's not him. And I'm just like, yo, I think you might have snitched on yourselves. But also, I was like frustrated at the time because I had to go back to my students, so I had to still show up all the way twenty minutes later and just be like, yo, I really just got stopped by the cops to for nothing. And they were already approaching hand on gun. Like I said, nah, we're not doing this right now. So I was so frustrated, but it was just like I still had to show up, but. I definitely think it's like a work in progress for a lot of people, but it's just understanding now these things become systemic and these things become routine because ideology turns into policy. That's how so many things happen all the time. Like we have to understand, like, if you think something, you say something, and then the people start to believe that, that can now trickle into, oh, this would make sense to put into a policy or how do we bring politics into it? Because now their assumptions are gonna dictate how you have to navigate in life. And that's the part that'd be wild to me when it comes to all of that. Fact of the matter is that person probably didn't think I belonged in a bank because he didn't think black people had money or that we were going in there to steal something because they probably haven't seen too many of us in central Pennsylvania, to be honest. That doesn't absolve him of his trash. Absolutely, you're very racist. <laughs> but I don't have time for excuses anymore because Making an excuse for them or waiting for them also means this is the difference of life or death for one of us. And that's the part where I'm just like, I don't have, as an educator, I'll do my best to keep educating as much as possible and as long as possible. But there's also a point of me where I'm just like, I don't have time to wait on you when I'm still getting trampled on my back every other day. And I remember in high school, actually right after high school, I was driving through Union, New Jersey. And so if anybody knows Union, Union is, is crazy because it's, it's a lot of black folks, it's a lot of white folks, they're separated. And so we're driving through Union coming back from one of the malls, I think Willowbrook Mall. It's irrelevant to anybody that don't know Jersey. So I'm getting pulled over and they pull me over, cop pulls me out the car. So I'm walking to the back of the car, it's a black cop. And I've never interacted with the police without their hand on their gun. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what the benefit of the doubt is. I've never had it since a child, I've never had it. And so, both cops, hands on their guns, they literally turned to me and asked me, what's the white boy doing in the car? That was their question. It was four black kids and a white kid. And the white kid, you know, he was hood certified, so he was riding with the goons and all that. But like, that was their question. It wasn't, what are you doing over here? Where are you going? The only question they asked me before they went into their whole spiel about why they pulled me over, broken taillight nonsense, is what is the white boy doing in the car? And that left such a lasting impression on me because it goes back to what you said about having to then show up. Um, when I was working in the Bronx, the NYPD, they have like this rotating system and maybe you saw it where they put different metal detectors into different schools. And so like, you know, your more problematic schools, they'll show up with metal detectors. It's like unannounced. And so one day I'm coming from Queens to the Bronx, it's already an hour and a half commute and just a long commute that morning. So when I finally get to the school, I walk in and it's like six New York police department officers just standing there laughing with each other, winding kids down. And it hit me like, yo, this is crazy. This is cra this is oppressive. 
we haven't, you don't even know these kids. You're not even the cops that are usually here because there was a lot of gang violence in and around that school. So, you know, some sort of presence was necessary for some, some of the kids for sure. But like these NYPD cops that are laughing and joking and having a good old time have no idea that they're oppressing these young men and women in this building. And it got to the point where like, I literally walked, I had to take a lunch break for an hour and I walked to the park and I sat in the park and I had to ask myself, what am I really doing? What am I really a part of? What do I really stand for? Because it goes, like you said, like we still have to show up as professionals. We get slighted and we get disrespected, but then we still have to show up with a smile on our face. And like you said, I love to smile every single day, but there have been days during this pandemic specifically where like smiling is extremely, extremely difficult. Smiling is is nearly impossible sometimes if my wife or parents or my dog can't get it out of me because we have to deal with so much and there's so much stacked on top of us. Um, and just wanted to throw this in really quickly. My wife and I started watching Woke uh, with Keith with Keith Knight on uh, FX. Yo, yo, show. I love it. It's amazing. It's hilarious to the folks out here. FX clearly isn't paying me. Um, this is this is unsolicited. But if you get a chance, watch it because it's a great show. And it goes to what you said about like that awakening moment of like, oh, snap, like we really got to be woke out here now. And the way that they went about it is comedic, but it's also so like it's so real life. Nah, I wholeheartedly agree. I definitely binged that entire John. I'm not even gonna hold. Cause I already liked the actor from when he was in New Girl. So I'm just like, all right, Lamore and you already, I'm already sold. Um, but it was definitely like one of those moments where I was just like, anybody who went through a PWI or anybody who just kind of got by life because they're probably like a I'm a really likable black person, it was smooth. But I remember, like, seeing him, I call it the seven stages of blackness. Like, you just realize your blackness. You're just like, oh, wait, no, that wasn't a thing. And then you're just like, ah, I'm kind of bothered by this. Then you get your history. Then you go to anger. Then you try to go to reconciliation. And then you're just like, ah, you know what? I'd rather not even be around it. And I remember watching it. And there were about four or five people that texted me. It was just like, Marquise. This show reminds me of you between the humor and just who he is. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I feel that. I mean, I realized it much sooner than he did. Um, however, I definitely was like having those moments of just like, yeah, that was me. Yeah, I remember that. I had that conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's, this is a great show uh, created by Keith Knight and Marshall Todd. Like you said, stars Lamar Morris, Blake Anderson, who is my boy, man, from Workaholics. Um, and he he's such a great representation of like white people that are trying. And I, I found so much humor in that because he was given the effort. And sometimes when you give the effort, it's like with anything, right? Like being a husband, I give the effort, but I also have to listen because if I don't listen, then my effort is meaningless if I'm not giving the effort the right way. And so that show was just crazy. I, I absolutely loved it. You're listening to the Third Lap Podcast with Mal Davis. Yeah. This is Mal Davis here, Third Lap Podcast with Marquise Richards. And so, Marquise, you, you talked to us about, like, what got you started on your pathway going overseas to the Czech Republic, just the microaggressions that you faced at the PWI that you went to, realizing that it was imperative to be disruptive in so many different ways, and your theater background helped you to really explore what blackness looked like in the theater, but also gave you literally a stage, right, to like stand on and and to use to be able to continue to disrupt. And so talk to us about like where you are now. What are some of the difficulties that you've had to face? You know, you're you're still a young brother. You're 25 at this point, right? 
on Monday. Talk to us, you know, 24 going on 25. Where are you right now? What are some of the difficulties that you've had to overcome? What are some of the difficulties that you still face as a young professional, as a young revolutionary? Yeah, um, there's a couple. So I think I always do, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I like give, I go by my birthday and just like, well, how do I want to bring in this year? Um, so when I first graduated, it was a year of disruption for me. Um, for 24, it's my year of sustaining. Um, in 25, it'll be like my self-titled year, like me fully coming into who I am. Like I'm going to fully like be present and just in terms of just me. But 24, I think this last year, it's pushed me a lot <laughs> and it's not easy. It was not an easy year because um, I met my pops for the first time in 24 years. So that was me figuring out a whole nother aspect of my identity. And just like, there's so many more questions that I have when it comes to him. And that was just interesting, just because that's a very particular relationship I have with the prison industrial complex and all that kind of stuff. So that's always been something I've been passionate about, um, but wanting to like dismantle whatever that looked like. But I think for me, this pushed me in terms of social justice and my values. So when you were talking about just trying to figure out like, who am I? What do I represent? What do I want to change? Why do I do this? You're like, I went through the series of questions and I'm just like, I know I want to keep fighting for this. I want to fight to ensure that Black folk are given the proper access. I want to make sure that my students are going to grow up in a world that allows them to celebrate every single aspect of who they are. And I think it becomes difficult because I started walking in my purpose, but through walking in my purpose, I started to pour out of empty cups. And that was very difficult because I was just like, I'm doing what I love to do. I'm investing in people. I'm mentoring. I'm, I'm doing this education thing. I'm doing this podcast thing. I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. But I realized there was a moment that as you also walk in your purpose and you forget to pour into your own self once again, and you start going on autopilot, that's what I ended up doing. And I was just like, something is missing. And so for me, there were parts where I was just like, yes, 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 yes. And then I plateaued. And I was just like, what is this thing that I'm missing? What is my purpose right now? And so I think when the pandemic really hit, it stopped, it stopped me. It stopped the rest of the world, right? But it stopped me and I was forced to reckon with myself because anybody will tell you, all right, I got a networking event here. I got, I'm throwing an event this time. I got a show this day. I got an interview this day. I got this, this day. But I was able to sit down and just realize like, damn, I got to work through some of my own trauma. I didn't even, I didn't even fully, fully process what it meant to meet my dad a full year later. Like <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out like, what does this relationship look like? What does the relationship to myself look like? What is the relationship to the product and the stuff that I create? What does that look like? I think for me, um, a really difficult spot was watching, it was Ahmaud Arbery. And I was like, this is a scene out of the 1920s. This is a scene out of like the 1800s, like the pickup truck, a uh, black kid running. And then seeing that, I, I had that moment. I was just like, yo, it's a century later. And what has actually changed? What is this purpose? Why do we keep fighting? What is this? And I I remember like just having this moment where I was watching my students like put on this defund the police conversation with a group of students at Morehouse. And I said, that's why I keep doing what I do. Seeing them be inspired, seeing them interact with me and they're seeing what I'm doing on social media. And they're just like, Marquise, I don't think you realize like you inspired 
who I am. You inspire what I do now. You inspire us to be as excellent as possible. And so hearing that from students, I didn't realize I wasn't actually receiving that kind of information or that or that kind of like commentary from a lot of people because they started to expect me to just produce like it's Marquise he's going to do a good thing I don't expect anything less from him but I didn't realize like oh snap like though I keep doing this and it's making sure the world's for a better place and it's something that I love seeing that kind of impact and seeing the inspiration that I gave my students really like picked me up from that spot but there there's still days where it's difficult where I'm just like I watched my hometown, like people in power look at me like I was look at me sideways. Like, yes, there's a lot of people who support me, but to see like this public discrediting of like the work that I do and the fact that they're just like, oh, Marquise, you're just you're just being divisive or you're being lazy in your approach or you're doing X, Y and Z when it comes to like my mission to defund the police in the city of Reading. I'm just like we the research is out there. I'm not going to keep like reiterating the fact that. Y'all as the policymakers need to step up. You as the policymakers need to listen to the people that you were elected to serve. And if you're going to continue to ignore these this 8% of Black folk in the city, it doesn't make sense to me. So I just remember like there was a little bit and it was the comment where somebody called me lazy, where I was just like, nah, <laughs> that's what that's the last thing you're going to call me if, if it's in terms of any type of activism that I'm doing or any type of um, events that I'm putting on. Y'all want to celebrate me when everybody's like celebrated and people have the opportunity to perform or they have the opportunity to sing or whatever, and they have a platform. But when I use my platform to actually hold y'all accountable because you were a guest on my platform, and now I'm asking, what are you doing now for us? Like, that's the kind of stuff I did not like and it didn't sit with me well. So I remember they were just like throwing these shots on social media and they were throwing these shots in the comments. And I'm just like, Y'all are saying a lot about me without ever saying my name. So I remember I just, I said, you know what? I'm with all the smoke. So I went on social media and I said, I added the mayor, the city council, um, and a couple other people that were like playing in my face. And I said, see, you got the wrong one. So this is exactly why you're wrong. You're dusty. You're dumb. <laughs> you're this. And I didn't, I was like, there's no reason for me to like use pretty language with y'all anymore. Like y'all want to push me and y'all want to keep acting raggedy. I'm going to treat you like you're raggedy. And so it was in that moment where they also realized like Marquise will still like talk to us in a certain way. And I said, because I've been using this language to help educate you and help you inform the decisions that you make that will ultimately help everybody. Because my philosophy has always been, if you have the black trans woman, you inherently help everybody else. And if you're not going to set, if you're not going to do that, that doesn't make sense to me. So the fact of the matter is the mayor did not have the, he didn't even have the wherewithal after Ahmaud Arbery, after George Floyd, to even make a comment in terms of black lives in the city. No comment was ever made. We were supposed to call them out. It was like, yo, y'all didn't make a comment. So here's Dear Redding making another statement what the mayor should have done. So now we're getting a new kind of respect in the city and people have coined on, oh, well, Marquise is the next mayor of Reading. Marquise is going to do this. And I'm just like, I'm 24 and still have so much life to live. I'm not going back to Reading anytime soon. Like, let's be clear. I just know what's not right and what needs to be done. I'm not in that position. I'm not currently in that position to make these powerful decisions. I just know that I can mobilize the people and be able to, like, figure out what that looks like. But to see that public discrediting from people that at one point respected, they still respect me. To see that pushback, I was just like, oh, you also don't have the range to talk about blackness in a way that I do. 
at all. So I was like, that's very interesting to me because now what we're starting to see is increased police violence in our hometown and then a black trans woman in our hometown was literally just shot seven times. And it's a person who is also known to have issues with mental health, right? So we're just like, you're not even taking into consideration. We already know police don't do well with black folk. We know darn well that police really don't do well with black women. We know darn well they definitely are not rocking with black trans women, especially if they're just like, oh, I don't believe in that lifestyle, quote unquote, right? You add the mental health on top of that, now this black person is not the magical Negro and this person can't show up the way that you need to show up. So what just happened? The Reading Police Department um, is now trying to essentially cover their tracks. I'm telling you, transformative justice is a preventative measure. Defunding the police is a preventative measure. You can invest in healing spaces for the community. You can invest in rec centers for the community. You can invest in the community, but you're choosing to invest in the people that continue to brutalize everybody and they have the audacity to do so. So for me, I was just like, I'm starting to witness more and more of just like, y'all, I'm going to public dis I'm gonna publicly discredit you, but I'm also gonna remind you every single time I have a show now that the blood is on your hands of the next black or brown person that deals with police violence. And understanding you have the power to navigate that and change that and you're choosing not to because you want to uphold a particular system and who knows why. It's been a frustrating summer. It's been one where I've questioned why I was doing this thing. I've looked at people differently in my hometown. I know the cops definitely don't rock with me in my hometown. So it's now just like that idea of like, when I go back, do I have to worry about a target? Do I have to worry about certain things? Because now they know I'm more of a public facing figure, especially like after I had that conversation with the actual cops um, on a panel discussion. They were just like, Marquise, you're just talking in theory. You're not talking about actual like life. And I was like, I grew up in the city of Reading. I was stopped by a cop. I've had guns to my face. I've witnessed this violence. I don't want you to think just because I got a four-year degree, that doesn't mean that negates my actual life experience either. It's been a very interesting summer. It's been an interesting year of seeing the work that I do be pivoted in a way that now requires people to think critically about what I'm having conversations about. But now we have the platform of superintendents, governors, um, state representatives are now also listening in our podcast to hear what's going on as well. So we had to turn into a thought leader. But coming with that new space, I didn't adjust to how quickly that would like require people to need me in different kind of ways. So it's like my emails, I could no longer keep up with them. People somehow got my phone number and are like, Marquise, we need you to speak at this or Marquise can you help us organize this? Or can you use their writing to do da, 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 da? And I could not keep up. And I was just like, this is exhausting. I'm not the only black person that can do this. I just want to make sure that other black people feel empowered to be as bold as I am. Because the fact of the matter is a kid said he wanted to help, but he did not want to detract from my movement because he felt as if he would take away from it because people thought he was a thug. And I said, you're Black in the city of Reading. This is a, just as much as your experience as it is mine. And I don't want you to do that. I understand my privilege of having a four-year degree rewards me some space into these rooms, but best believe I'm not the only one entering this space. I'm bringing at least seven or eight or 10 other people with me. And if they don't want us in there, I created my own spaces. I'm not a stranger to that at all. We'll make our own movement. So, yeah. <laughs> you said a bunch of really important things there. First and foremost, this for the thugs too, man. You know, this for the girls, this for the dudes that's in the trap, this for the dudes that so many of the, of the black men 
that I know and black women, you know, Latinx folks that are caught up in the gangs, caught up in the street violence, caught up in drug trafficking and all of these things. That wasn't what they wanted to do. Right. They they look at us and say, damn, I wish I had that opportunity. And when you give them that exact conversation with my dad, he was just like, don't ever be who I am. Yep. Exactly. And I've had so many of those conversations and, you know, people need to understand that we have to stop this this divisive sort of means of educated versus non-educated, right? Like you and I talked about the talented 10th in our first conversation. And like that whole thought process is is defeating to us as black and brown people, because if we believe that only 10% of us can make it and 90% of us are basically good for nothing, we'll never make any strides because 10% of our people can't carry the vast majority, right? And so I want anyone listening to this, if you're in the streets, if you're in college, if you're a professional, if you're out here in prison and somehow come across these podcasts, know that this is also for you. You know, the Black Panther Party and so many of the revolutionary parties and so many of the college, you know, Snake and Malcolm and Martin and all of these other people, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, Huey P., Fred Hampton, all of these people that had a platform and had a stage and used it, many of them were criminals at some point in their life. Some of them were academics. Many of them came straight out the streets. And so, you know, I really want our street folks to understand that this is also for you, too. We're not just doing this to help other folks that are just like us. This is a whole conglomerate movement. You know, when we're talking about defunding the police is because we've seen historically that these police budgets, there's no reason that the New York Police Department has the operating budget that it does. They don't need tanks and missile launchers and anti-defense mechanisms. You know, they don't need it. The city of Philadelphia, you don't need it. When we are in such dire need of social justice and social systems, like you said, after school programs, we need social workers. We need dedicated health professionals that can talk to and help people struggling with mental health, give them access to steady therapy, right? Group therapy, individualized therapy, talk therapy, medication if necessary. We have so many people homeless on these streets that are paranoid schizophrenics that don't have medication and don't have access to resources. And so when they interact with the police and they're getting murdered because they're acting erratic with a knife or a spoon or whatever it may be, it's because these police budgets have grown extensively at the harm of our schools, of our social systems, of the people in the social sector. And I see so many people say without police, we couldn't operate the way we do. That's not true. This is not true. Police aren't trained to deal with those types of situations. And so, you know, defunding the police and abolishing the prison industrial complex, these things are mandatory for real progress in this country. And I love the fact that you and the people that you work with and, and what you represent is is so strong and reading. And I continue to encourage young black people to keep this movement going. And continue to be that light. You know, like you said, your students see you on social media and want to be just like you. And so when they get into that position of potentially going to a PWI or even at HBCUs, we hate to have this conversation, but there's elitists at HBCUs too, right? Like we have a huge division at some of these schools where there are people that believe that they're better than the next man or woman or next person because of where they came from and the money that they have. And so we have all of these divisive measures already in place. Um, but, you know, continue this work because it's imperative and I, I encourage you and I'm here for you and will continue to be here for you as you move forward in any way possible, because I know that you're going to bring about the change that's necessary and continue to have these conversations. You may end up with the target. Right. But like they can't silence you 
because you come with so many other people and you're enabling so many other people to come to the table and have these conversations. So again, all the thugs, all the homies, all the gangsters listening to this, we out here for you too, man. This ain't just for college educated folks. This ain't for the middle class, black, upper middle class. This is for every single person because we are all in this together. My grandmother always told me you can only run as fast as the slowest black person walks, which means that we all have to keep a pace together. Um, and so, Marquise, you really talked at length about some of the struggles and difficulties of where you are currently. Let's talk a little bit about where you're headed next. Where do you project this going in the future? Oh, man. Um, yeah, no, this year, I took, like, I, intentionality is my word this year. Um, I've kind of, like, stumbled into, like, doing all of these things and kind of, like, got slapped in the face to be <laughs> who I am now. But this year is definitely, I'm moving with intention. I am um, working with an organization now. And in January, we're going to start rolling out like this new program that can be revolutionary for all Black, Indigenous, and people of color as well, which I'm super excited about, especially to kind of build out what a curriculum looks like, but then also build out like, yo, what can a program look like now when we're in this digital space, but then start building up these um, groups. So I'm definitely going to continue to build out um, spaces where kids can have opportunities for mentors. But then also I am doing a short film that just navigates my experience just as a black creative in this space. And so um, it goes through the three different chapters of creation, education and liberation and why those are all through lines in every single piece of work or content that I create. But from there, I want to make sure I'm doing more storytelling in the way that I knew how. Theater, I always say, is the purest form of storytelling because I have to get to know this character, get to know their backstory, understand why they move the way that they do, say the lines that they say, um, and stuff like that. So I wanted to start really embodying a lot of that a little bit more. And if that's going to be through film or if that's going to be through events, but that's definitely going to be the space that I move in. So just creating a space where all Black people can thrive, uh, but then also creating a space where I want us to knock off this idea of Black excellence in the work that I do. It's a process. Not all of us come out the gate and we're just, whew, we're like the Michael Jacksons and Beyonce's and Janet Jackson's of the world anymore. Like, right? It takes time to get to there. I want people to recognize my own individual process. Um, this year, people are going to get to know me in a way that they didn't know me before. Uh, but my work is also going to be telling stories and allowing um, other Black stories to be told. Next year is the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa bombing. I want to go down and be able to document, like, what does that look like? And spend a month down there and just get to know and just immerse myself in that. So those are kind of ventures that I want to get out into because I think it's important um, to tell these stories in a very careful way. Um, and then also, I want to make sure I'm just pouring into myself like for this year. I can't, I realized when I didn't, I didn't show up as my best self. Um, I did the best that I could. But this year is definitely going to be me walking to my purpose, only accepting jobs or opportunities that really feed me and really solidifying where I want to be at by 30. I want to see where I'm at in this education space. I want to go for my master's. I also want to travel more. Like I, I got to see two different states, three different states that I've never seen before. I got to see Florida for the first time at the beginning of the year. I don't really want to go back there, but I guess <laughs> my boy's down there. 
Um, I got to see Chicago for a little bit. Um, and then I went to New Orleans, which was super dope. Um, and then I ended up going to Des Moines, Iowa to do some client work as well. And that was just, that was so much fun. Cause I was just like, Oh snap, like I'm doing this collaboration thing with Google and all this kind of stuff with my client, like this is dope. So yeah, um, definitely going to be more, I'm expanding outside of the podcast world. So yeah, it's just going to be, you'll see a little bit more of me, a little bit more of an honest side going into the storytelling aspect, but you'll definitely see more of the content creation, the creative keys really coming out. Um, but then also just working on a few projects to really start building out what my legacy is going to look like and just making sure I know exactly what that is and being intentional with that. So yeah. <laughs> you mentioned intentionality. So first, I have no questions that you'll be in a dope, the dopest spot at 30 if you continue to be intentional with the steps that you take. That's been, for me, it, where I am now at 35 has been a lot of self-reflection around intentionality because I've been so fortunate to land where I am professionally, personally, spiritually, but it wasn't planned. And we talked about that in our first initial conversation, like this wasn't a plan. And so, you know, I always challenge folks, plan it. You know, it may not go exactly as you anticipate or expect, but be intentional about the steps that you take and really want what you want and don't be afraid to go after it because that's the key, right? Like we're taught to just be uh, happy with whatever we get as black folks, right? Like we're just lucky if we get this or if we get that. No, that luck has run out. It's not about luck. It's about what you do and the steps that you take. And you're going to fall on your face, but keep picking yourself up, trial and error. But, you know, Marquise, I have no question that you will end up being immensely successful. And I, I look forward to continuing to interact with you over the years as you continue to move th forward through your career and just become more multifaceted because I know that there are so many things on the horizon for you and I'm super excited for you and I'm super excited for your team and, and for your family. And as you grow as a person and as a spiritual entity and being in this world, and as you continue to understand the power that you already have and what you can build on, you're going to be like Thanos at some point, right? Like you out here getting these infinity stones, <laughs> man. And so, you know, you're going to be snapping the finger and, you know, things going to fall to the ground. And that's a lot of power and that's a lot of potential, but that's also a beautiful thing. And I, I have nothing but happiness and joy in my heart for you. And so, you know, you also mentioned, again, back to the intentionality. I just want to say this out loud and make it very clear that trans lives matter, right? This Third Lab podcast, this is about being open-minded and you know you said that people see the end story in the end game it's that 10,000th hour and on this podcast is not about the 10,000th hour this is about the the hundredth hour this is about the thousandth hour this is about people that are building towards something great and what are they doing every single day to make sure that they get there and so you know I want to make it very clear that I firmly believe that trans lives matter uh, I am an advocate of the LGBTQIA community I'm going to have some out gay men on this show. I'm going to have some lesbian women on this show. I hope to have some trans people on this show so that they can also have that representation because what you said about Mark Lamont Hill is so important. You cannot be what you cannot see. And so I know that there will be people tuning in that don't have active representation and don't see people like themselves and can't hear stories of what folks have had to do to struggle with their sexuality and all of these different things. And so I want to make it known this early in the season, early in the, the podcast, that all of those things matter. And that's what we're here for. 
You're listening to the Third Lap Podcast with Mal Davis. Yeah. And so this is Mal Davis here, Third Lap Podcast with Marquise uh, Richards. And so Marquise, you've talked to us about your story. You've talked to us about who you are, what you've been through, where you're headed. The real question now is, what motivates you? You talked about your students, but what else keeps you pushing? What What is your internal why? Why do you keep at the same pace that you're at? The first thing I, I always said, I'm scared of leaving this earth without a legacy. I'm scared to not have meant something like as I get older, I've been thinking about mortality more often and just thinking about even like, especially because after Chadwick, like that really just put in perspective. And then thinking about Kobe, I wrote an article when I was 18 and I said, in like in our hometown, we saw deaths happening all the time. So I'm just like, I'm just happy to make it to 21. I made it 21. I'm happy that I can say I'm about to make it to 25. Like my next pivotal point is after Nipsey, 33. All right, Kobe. All right, Chadwick. So I'm just like very intentional about health and everything. So yeah, I've just been thinking about that. So yeah, I'm just scared to leave this earth without having a, a legacy. So that's something that motivates me. And then I, it's just my, my pops' story too. Like just to think you had 24 years of your life. You're in and out of the hole um, for 24 years of your life. Like that's wild to me. Um, so I was just like, how do I ensure that I don't lose out on those opportunities um, that could have came? And then, uh, yeah, I think that's really what it is, is really just figuring out like, I don't want to waste this time that I have. Um, <laughs> I like to be efficient with my time, but yeah, it's just um, leaving a legacy is really what motivates me a lot. And then just as I get got into education, it turned into leaving the door open for my students and making sure that I can empower them in the world that they're going to grow up in, not the one that I did. So yeah, my students and then my pops and leaving a legacy are like my three big, big motivators. I probably could have called this the Legacy Podcast because everybody's named Legacy and Legacy is a big part of why this podcast even started because, you know, I've had these sort of conversations, one-offs and on the phone and in person, we chopping it up and, and breaking bread and eating food and just laughing and joking, but like it never gets put on wax. It never gets recorded. And so because of the internet, this lasts forever. This won't go anywhere, right? Like when this gets uploaded, there'll be a link to this forever. And so Legacy is a huge piece of why I do anything that I do. The Third Lap Podcast is all about legacy. It's all about trial and never. It's all about working hard. Um, you said Nip. You said Kobe. You said Chadwick, right? So RIP to Nipsey Hustle. The marathon continues. RIP to Kobe Bryant, Mamba Mentality. And RIP, man, Chadwick Bozeman. I'm almost coming to tears behind hearing those three names, right? Like Wakanda forever. Um, because this year and this past, you know, Nip, we lost before, but it's been tough. We continue to take hits and we continue to see people at their prime going out before, you know, we feel like they're supposed to. And we watched Chadwick Boseman make some of the most iconic movies fighting cancer, right? Like in chemotherapy and never said a word. You know, we saw Kobe Bryant perish before his time um, in a helicopter crash that, you know, none of us will ever forget. We watched Nipsey Hussle get murdered by somebody in his gang because he called him a snitch and his life was snatched away that quickly over something extremely petty. And so it's a it's a constant reminder of our mortality and of the fact that we have to leave something behind for the people. The marathon will forever continue. 
right, will forever have that Mamba mentality, Wakanda forever. Your legacy will be something that people will talk about forever, but we only have but so much time on this planet, and we have no idea when that shot clock goes to zero. And so it's imperative, you know, black men go out here, get checked for cancer, colon cancer, um, testicular cancer, take care of your mental health, go see therapists, get medication if necessary. Marijuana is not the only way to deal with some of these things. Popping pills and drinking alcohol aren't necessarily the way to deal with these things. Sometimes they exacerbate and make the situation worse. Let us take care of our health and our mental well-being and our spirit, keep our spirits enriched and involved so that we can make sure that we leave something behind for the people. And so, Marquise, I would love for you to just leave folks with some motivational thoughts here. We've been on this podcast for a little while now, and you know, you've said and dropped gems from the very beginning until this point, but say people only can walk away with three to five minutes of, of what you're really trying to leave them with. If that's all they have, if that's all they can catch is this last three to five minutes or so, what are some motivational thoughts you want to leave them with? Um, some motivational thoughts to leave them with. Um, create a space. If there's if it's not there, create that space. Um, that's exactly how I've always like navigated. I didn't have that academic space. I didn't have that black empowerment space when I first got home from college. And I wanted something like that. So create something that you don't see. Be kind to yourself. <laughs> it is okay. We're all experiencing a bunch of crap. Please, please, please remember it is okay to feel. It is okay to find your tribe. And so that's something I found was super important was allowing myself to be human, allowing myself to break down, allowing myself to find a space where I got to now, the Rona kind of shook it up a little bit. I was in a space where I got to have um, conversations in a room full of Black men, all walks of life, queer, um, trans, straight, fat, dark skin, light skin, like everything. Um, and that was just such a healing space, older as well. And just seeing like these different dynamics where we all came here because we had access to a mental health specialist, right? So... That's just something I want to make sure people leave with is knowing like you still have your opportunity to build your legacy, change the world in a way that you know how specifically. I use it through my words. I use it through my creation of my podcast. Dancers, tell your story the way you need to tell your story. Musicians, tell your story the way you need to tell the story. Um, activists, educators, healers, like we all play a different kind of role. Um, just know what your role is in this space of liberation, let you what is your space? What is your role in humanity? Um, and how are you creating a world where you're not replicating the trauma um, that we faced more and more and make sure that we're not putting that onto the next generation? I think that's something important. So I hope like that just quick reflection where you're allowed to just be human, essentially, and leave the legacy that you want to leave is really like that motivation for people to hear. And that's really what I got, especially from Chadwick, is specifically him. Um, he hit me a little bit harder than I was expecting. And so make sure you do stuff that means something to you and make sure you do something that will open the door and just be kind as you do it as well. That's the story I keep hearing with him. He was always a kind person and he always put his all in. Do what you need to do, take your breaks when you need to, share when you need to share. But yeah, I think that's all I want to leave the people with during this thing. The gems, man. That's, that's the <laughs> crown. You just left them with the whole crown jewels right there. Yeah, man. right there. Um, but I love what you said. I love everything that you said, but specifically around create that space. 
right? Like we, I've fallen victim to saying, oh, the space isn't there. I don't know what to do. And so it's imperative you take that step. And sometimes you're going to fail with that step. But there, you know, in this household between my wife and myself and when we have children, the mantra here is you win or you learn. There's no such thing as losing. And that so, part. you know what I mean? Like, we're not, we not losing. We're learning. And so through this process of trial and error, we're going to continue to learn and continue to just be our best selves. And so, Marquise, um, what are some things that, that you read as I continue to compile the reading list and, like, the, the books that are suggested to me on, on the thirdlappodcast.com? What are some books that really helped you out that you would suggest people check out? I got got three here. Uh, no, I got four. <laughs> I got four. Um, so one is Fences um, by August Wilson. Um, one of my favorite playwrights um, to like exist, but he created plays where um, he created characters who happened to be Black. And I think that was important because he forced you to recognize this as human before you saw just, oh, Black person a person who happens to be black, it changes the dynamic a little bit. But Fences is some is one of the first plays I had like a very visceral reaction to, especially just the relationship between father and son. Super important to me. Everybody, just make sure you have the autobiography of Malcolm X as told by Alex Haley. That's super pivotal, especially just in everything that I do. So I always have a picture of Malcolm X. I have this book on my desk and a picture of my pop-pop on my desk at all times. So <laughs> All Boys Aren't Blue. Uh, by George M. Johnson. They're an amazing queer writer, non-binary, but they really kind of helped navigate, like, what does sexuality look like? What does it mean to grow up in this kind of space and really understand, like, there's this duality between masculine energy and feminine energy and something in between. So it's really beautiful to see their memoir and just kind of see their relationship. So it was cool because I got to see a story where these people weren't always represented, but they're very familiar stories at the same time. So I highly, highly recommend this to especially anybody who's raising a trans child or somebody who just wants knows what does it mean to raise a queer child, right? So I really love their this section of like their reflection of life and telling these personal stories, but also attaching it to the macro. I think it's super important. And um, last but not least, uh, Bell Hooks, uh, We Real Cool, <laughs> Black Men and Masculinity. If you want to get dragged as a black man, please enjoy this book. No, it really talks about our inner community relationship to one another. So how does masculinity intersect with blackness and how does that also potentially harm our community at the same time? So Bell Hooks does a really, really amazing job of kind of breaking it down from um, sexual domination to how we show up in school, how we are disciplined, um, and how we replicate white supremacy sometimes too as Black men, um, cis Black men in particular. And so I think it's really important for us to always have that kind of critical conversation with ourselves to ensure that we're not replicating this harm because it is a very real thing that Black women, and it's in proximity too, right? So I don't want to make it seem like, oh, no, 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 no. Um, but in proximity, how are Black men really allowed to show up and what are these restrictions? And so most trans Black women are dying at the hands of Black men. Right. So it's really having to reconcile. We're in a system that props men up, but does not prop up blackness. And we're still having this power struggle at the same time. So take that as an opportunity to check your own privilege, but also check how you could have been in violent, be violent towards your own as well. I think that's just 
it's a gut check, but it's an important check because it touches on a lot of stuff that Black men are scared to navigate, and we haven't ever had a chance to navigate. There it is. I got a chance actually to see Fences at Signature Theater in New York City. My mom took me when I was a young boy, so we got a chance to check that out. It was dope. Um, I believe Denzel actually was in it, if I'm not mistaken. I, I want to say yes. I, I should have checked that. He's played first. in it multiple times. Yeah, so I'm I'm like 95% sure Denzel was in it. My, you know, if I'm wrong, check me. I know you will anyway when you hear the episode, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. But that was dope. Um, and thank you for the suggestions for all four books. Um, I have not read the last two, but I need to get my hands on those. I'm actually go to Amazon right after this episode is over place an order, get those in my hands, uh, and start digesting that. Because like you said, there's a lot to unpack around how to raise queer children and not be destructive to who they are and their well-being. I can't sit here and say trans lives matter, and I'm a and I'm a part of being an advocate, but then actively continue to perpetuate a lot of this cisgender stereotypes on the children. That's unfair to them and, and just, you know, hypocritical. Um, and then also, like you said, that dynamic of being a man, which is a dominant, but then being black, which is subordinate, and like that power struggle that exists with, that was explained uh, by Bell Hook. So got to check that out. I should have read that already. Um, but, you know, it's never too late. Got to get to nah, it. Not at all. Right? Tony Morrison. So we good. It is. I've been on Tony Morrison. Mom Dukes had me on Tony Morrison as a young boy. And so, you know, we all get to where we get to when we get to that point. But it's important that we make those strides. And so last couple minutes here, Marquise, where can people find you on social media? Word. So across all social media platforms, it's at Marquise Davon, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E-D-A-V-O-N. Um, Marquise Davon. I live in the Twitter streets. I am <laughs> a man of the Twitter streets. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but also Instagram, um, really easy to follow me there and find all of the things that I'm part of. So you can see Rational Anger Podcast um, drops every single Thursday. Um, and we touch on a bunch of different topics. Our most recent one, we talked about uh, miscegenation laws and the tragic mulatto um, trope as well. So that's like a fun episode. Dear Redding, um, Dear RDG is how you'll find it across all social media as well. Um, and we're always talking about local politics and um, activism in our hometown at the same time. So you'll get two different feels of where they are, um, but um, you'll still be able to gain something from either podcast, no matter who you are. Um, other than that, if you go to my page, you'll see the YouTube page is going to be starting soon, but that's where the, to the mountain, which is why I named it, um, short film is going to be existing as well. So you'll be able to watch it there. Yeah. I think that's everything. Yeah. Yes, sir. And I just followed you on Twitter. So we about to be in these Twitter streets together. Let's get it. Yeah, Say less. That's place to be. <laughs> we, about to, we out here. I tell my wife, man, I don't know what took me so long to get on Twitter, but I'm glad I'm out here. But if you're looking for the Third Lap podcast, you can find all of the episodes at the Third Lap. So T H E, the number three R D L A P P O D C A S T dot com. So you can find us on the website. You know, I'm glad to get this started. Marquise, I'll be tapping you because I'm going to need some help with managing some of the social media stuff and figuring it out. You've been a huge help to me so far. So I'm going to keep relying on you, brother, um, because I am an old man. I'm realizing that now that I'm doing this podcast, you know, I'm 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 ancient. My wife is trying to help me. I had my boy Hack yell at me about Instagram already. He was the third episode. And so, you know, I'm realizing that I have a long way to go before I really understand this thoroughly. But um. 
Marquise, man, it, it's been a pleasure. You know, this was such an awesome opportunity for me to have you on here to really get an opportunity to speak with you about your pathway to where you are and what are some of the things that you've had to overcome, but ultimately where you're headed next. And that excites me again so much because I get a chance to see you continue to grow and develop over this time. Um, like I said, we out here together, man. We, we brothers in arms. And so, you know, any last words that you want to leave the people with before we sign out? Um, just thank you uh, in particular. Like, I'm telling you, that conversation, I was not expecting it to go as long as it did. I was not expecting just what we were going to talk about. But it really helped give me a little bit more direction of what I wanted to do. Um, and also just reminded me, don't settle. Just because, like, it's there, don't just take it just because. So I just want people to know, like, you definitely are, like, playing a pivotal role in like these last this last month and some change of like knowing you just thank you that's it like <laughs> I'm here, man. and like i told you i'm here for you brother so any way that i can help you already know you can reach out to me so this is episode five of the third lap podcast this is mal davis signing out thank you for tuning in to another episode of the third lap podcast this is your host mal davis Please visit thethirdlappodcast.com for more information about the podcast, about our guests, and also to see our reading list. You can find us at The Third Lap Podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook, at Third Lap on Twitter, and at Third underscore Lap underscore Podcast on Instagram. If you know anyone that would be great to be featured on this show, please reach out to our host, Mal Davis. He's always looking for interesting people to learn more about them and to talk about their pathway. Thank you so much again. Have a good one.